This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. In this church, we're not slavishly, you know, devoted to the Christian year and the liturgical calendar. There are all kinds of weird and minor feasts that we don't feel obligated to, to reverence. But we do like to celebrate the five great celebrations of the Christian year. We love to celebrate Christmas and God's gift of his son, Jesus Christ, to become man for us. We love to celebrate Good Friday and God giving his son to die on the cross for us. We celebrate Easter Sunday when Jesus rose gloriously and victoriously from the dead. Today we celebrate the ascension of the risen Jesus to the right hand of God, and next week we celebrate the great feast of Pentecost when the risen, exalted Jesus pours out his spirit upon his church. Ascension Sunday may be the most neglected of those feasts, but it shouldn't be. Because at the very center of the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, that Christ is the King. And when we celebrate communion after this message, we're not merely remembering a dead and buried Savior. We are having communion with the Jesus who is with us now by his Spirit, who's seated at God's right hand, reigning over the world. The ascension is described, I believe, three times in the Bible. Luke tells us twice, and at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, in the beginning of Acts, uh, that Jesus, after spending 40 days after his resurrection, teaching his disciples, went out to the Mount of Olives, and while they were speaking with him, he ascended and disappeared into the clouds out of their sight. And those two are accounts told from an earthly perspective, the perspective of the disciples. But there is, I believe, a third account the God's eye view of the resurrection. And we're going to turn to the book of Daniel. We're going to the Old Testament. We're going to turn to Daniel chapter 7. And listen to this description of Jesus arriving in the throne room of God. We're in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. And Daniel writes, As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, 
and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. On Sunday, December 9th, 2019, early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China was raided by the secret police. And over 100 members of this church were arrested, including the pastor, Pastor Wang Yi, and his, his wife, Jian Rong. And later that month, after a secret trial, uh, Pastor Wang was sentenced to nine years in prison, the longest sentence for a pastor in the underground church in China over the last decade. Pastor Wang had been speaking out quite boldly and prophetically, and he foresaw that he would be arrested and imprisoned. And he wrote a document titled, My Declaration of Faithful Obedience. And he left it with his church with instructions that if he was arrested, they would publish this document within 48 hours. Let me give you a selection of what he wrote in his Declaration of Faithful Obedience. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly, momentary lives about heavenly, eternal life. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers. Even though I am often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting, who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. And Pastor Wang finished his declaration with this paragraph. Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. And throughout the world, we have brothers and sisters like Pastor Wang who are bearing witness to the truth that Jesus is alive, that he is exalted, and that he is reigning. And it is deeply helpful for our hearts this afternoon to forget about our problems and our sins and our issues and to fix our eyes on Jesus and find joy that he has taken his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
the book of Daniel is, it's a very strange book. It was written about six, five or six hundred years before the coming of Jesus. Daniel was a highly educated Jewish nobleman, probably, who was taken to Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem. And there he served first the Babylonian court and then their Persian conquerors. Here Daniel was with the other exiles from Judah, far from the promised land, the hopes of the nation having been crushed, the temple having been destroyed, and these few scattered exiles are being ground between the massive gears of world empires that are fighting for supremacy in the ancient Near East. And we can only imagine the fear, the despair, the confusion of people who are trying to find God in this situation when the people of God are far from their glory days. Has God forgotten us? Has God remembered his inheritance? Is God even able to help us in this foreign land? Can he protect us in the lion's den? Can he rescue us from the fiery furnace? Does God even have power away from his temple and away from Mount Zion and away from the promised land? Here we are in the midst of this mighty empire, surrounded by strange and terrifying gods who seem to have supremacy over the world. Where is God? This book of Daniel is a genre called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is it's a message to a people in crisis where a vision is given from God, a revelation, and the curtain is pulled back. And the suffering despairing people of God are shown what is really true. And their perceptions are changed by the Spirit of God and by this revelation so that they can imagine a different kind of ending to what seems like an utterly hopeless scenario. And here in the middle of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, God gives Daniel this spectacular vision of human history from the perspective of heaven, a perspective we desperately need ourselves. Throughout this book, the theme undergirding the book of Daniel is this, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the nations, and he will rescue his waiting people. And to encourage those who are struggling and despairing, this vision is given. Daniel looks and he sees the throne of God. He sees God, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne in unapproachable holiness and in terrifying power. The throne itself is burning with fire, and there is a river of fire flowing from the throne. For our God 
is a consuming fire. And as Daniel beholds this, you can imagine the brilliant light and the burning heat that are overwhelming his senses in the presence of God. And there before God are thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of angels, cherubim, seraphim, bowing down before the throne and waiting on God. The throne has wheels. Because the throne of God and the power of God are not limited to one place or one mountain or one temple, God is present everywhere, judging the world, reigning over history, rescuing his people. God is not limited to the promised land. He's not limited to Israel and Jerusalem and this little city and this tiny people. The sovereignty of God extends everywhere. And this holy and awesome, majestic God sits on his throne and the court is opened. The court of judgment is seated. The books are opened up, the books that God is going to use to weigh and judge the nations. Throughout this chapter, Daniel encounters these four strange beasts. At the beginning of the chapter, these four beasts arise out of a turbulent sea that is being stirred by the four winds, these strange, horrifying animals, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and finally a strange monster with teeth of iron that crushes everything in its path. And we can feel the hair standing up on the back of Daniel's neck as he sees these horrifying creatures arising out of a chaotic sea. I believe these creatures symbolize the successive empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, but we're not going to get into all the details of exactly what symbolizes what. The point is, these beasts are representative of every kingdom in history that has oppressed and crushed people and that has rebelled against God and opposed his people. And Daniel is given a revelation of the true nature of human empires and human political power. Horrific beasts that tear and destroy. Animals that arise out of chaos and evil. And one after the other, these animals come forth, and Daniel is deeply disturbed in this vision. But now, in the presence of God, these beasts are being judged. One of them is flung into the fire to be destroyed. The other is have their power removed, even though in the sovereignty of God they're allowed to reign, allowed to live for a short while. And then in Daniel's vision, he sees someone before him like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. A son of man is simply an Aramaic colloquialism that means this was someone who was like a human being. He had a human 
appearance. And this human being, this human-like figure, is entering the throne room of God. In the prophet Ezekiel, who wrote around the same time, he sees above the throne of God someone, a figure like that of a man, the Son of Man. And this, of course, if you're familiar with the Gospels, is Jesus' favorite term to describe himself. He almost never calls himself the Messiah or the Christ. He refers to himself very often in the third person as the Son of Man, referring to Daniel chapter 7, this exalted human figure entering into the throne room of God. Now, what is very striking is that this human figure is coming with the clouds. And in the Old Testament, God is the one who is the cloud rider. Psalm 104, he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. And there are many other references in the Old Testament to God riding on the clouds. And now, here is a human being arriving in the heavenly throne room in God's personal chariot. It's a very strange figure that Daniel saw in his vision in this chapter. A person who has both human qualities and also divine qualities. A mystery that would have made no sense to Daniel. A mystery that only makes sense in light of the full New Testament revelation when we realize the Word has become flesh. The Son of God, who with the Father is to be worshipped and adored, has come into history as a human being to suffer and to die for our sins. And you know, we normally associate this phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven, as a descent of Jesus from heaven to this earth. But it's clear in Daniel, it's not a descent from heaven, it's an ascent into heaven. Jesus is going upwards through the clouds. He's coming upwards with the clouds of heaven into the presence of God. And so what I believe Daniel saw in his vision five or six hundred years before its time is the arrival of the risen, exalted Jesus into the throne room of God 40 days after his resurrection. The disciples saw Jesus vanish into the clouds. Daniel sees him now emerge from the clouds. And this Jesus is led, he's escorted into the throne room of God by the angelic bodyguard. Escorted into the presence of the Ancient of Days. Surely to announce that he has fulfilled the mission the Father gave him. That he has been obedient even to the death on the cross that he suffered for the sins of the world to announce that it is finished, to present his completed sacrifice to the pleasure of his heavenly Father. And then the Son of Man is given a gift. Verse 14, he was given authority, 
glory and sovereign power. Given. This kingdom is given to Jesus by his Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, because of his obedience to death and his descent to the very lowest point, God has brought him to the very highest point to receive the worship of the nations. Given to Jesus this kingdom as the reward of his sufferings. As the righteous, well-earned reward of the obedience of Jesus, he's given universal rule. We must remember how utterly different this king and this kingdom are from every earthly kingdom. This is not a king who forces his subjects to die for him. He comes to die for his subjects, to offer his own life in self-giving love to purchase for himself a kingdom of redeemed sinners, a kingdom of love and a kingdom of peace. It's a universal kingdom. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, Daniel observes. This king is far more than even the messianic root of David who would take the throne of David because he's not just reigning over a tiny strip of land along the Mediterranean coast, the little tiny land of Israel. He's not just reigning over this small Jewish nation. The Son of Man is given global supremacy. He is given dominion from the river to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea. The coastlands and the islands are given to Jesus. Ask me, God the Father says to his Son in Psalm 2, ask me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And Daniel sees people from every tribe and tongue, from every language and nation, bowing down before the Son of Man, before this divine human figure in worship and adoration. And surely they were shouting, with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and praise. The kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom without borders. You will never come to the end of Christ's kingdom. You will never pass beyond the frontier of his sovereignty. Jesus is king everywhere. 
and your embassy from your home country might warn you there are certain places you really shouldn't travel, certain lawless zones and autonomous republics. If you go there, you're going to be beyond the help of di- uh, beyond diplomatic help. No such thing in the kingdom of Jesus. He reigns over everyone and every thing and every place. Jesus' dominion is universal, and it all belongs to him by right because it has been given to him by God. And therefore, when we obey the call of Jesus to proclaim the gospel of his kingship to the nations, we are inviting and we are commanding people to submit to their prince, to their king who has bought them with his blood. It's a universal kingdom, but it is also an eternal kingdom. His dominion, Daniel tells us, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. You know, the Nazis had an ambition to build the thousand-year Reich, and they designed their architecture to last for a full millennium because they were sure the Aryan nation would last at least that long. And of course, Hitler's empire collapsed after less than 12 years because the most powerful, the most ambitious, the wealthiest empires that the world has ever seen rarely survive beyond even a few hundred years. In 1818, the English poet Percy Shelley wrote a sonnet about a statue that was found half buried in the sands of Egypt. All that were left were two legs and near them a shattered head half buried in the sand. And here's how Shelley concluded his poem. And on the pedestal, these lines appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That is the fate of every human empire, to be buried and to be forgotten. But the sun will never set on the empire of Jesus. Because the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus himself is eternal and immortal. And when he rose from the dead, he was clothed with indestructible life. Jesus is never going to grow old. He's never going to lose his capacities. He's never going to fade away and become decrepit and die. Jesus is going to live forever as king, and therefore, because Jesus is eternal and immortal, the kingdom of Jesus will also never die. A universal kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and an indestructible kingdom. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, Daniel tells us. 
In the second chapter of his book, Daniel had a vision of a statue, a statue with a head of gold and a torso and arms made of silver and legs of iron and feet that were made of a mixture of iron and clay. The top of the statue was glorious. The base of the statue was weak and fragile. And there was a stone taken out of the ground that smashed the feet of that statue. The whole thing fell over and shattered, and the wind swept the dust away, leaving no trace. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees a vision of the exalted and the ascended Christ. And in that vision, Jesus has not feet with a fragile mixture of iron and baked clay, but feet of bronze. Because Jesus stands utterly secure, and nothing can topple him. The Chinese Communist Party is not the first regime in history to try to destroy the kingdom of Jesus. The rage of Satan has manifested itself again and again through imperial troops and revolutionary guards and secret police interrogators who have desperately tried to stamp out the church of God. And it's strange because the people they've tried to destroy have been so small and helpless, and you would think so easily to wipe out with just a little more exertion, and yet, somehow, these people cannot be destroyed. And they multiply, and they grow as the kingdom of Jesus manifests its indestructible power. Human beings, of course, can come together for great good. But human beings can also assemble for unimaginable evil. And in our day, we see so many totalitarian regimes seeking to control, to survey, to brainwash their citizens using technology to tighten their control on those over whom they reign. And these totalitarian regimes have a deep fear of those who serve another king and another empire. We bear no weapon except the good news of the love of God. And yet, we are an incredible threat to those who seek totalitarian control, those who are prompted by the malice of the serpent who has been trying to destroy the seed of the woman. The mighty hand of the exalted Lord Jesus is covering and protecting his church all over the world. Nourishing this kingdom that begins as small as a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, and yet 
is growing into a tree that will fill the earth. Here is our basic confession as disciples of Jesus. This is what it is all distilled down into. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Jesus is Lord. And that means Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. And this is why Christians were brutally persecuted by the Roman Empire. Yes, they gave qualified obedience, recognizing, as Paul teaches in Romans 13, that those authorities that exist have been appointed by God, and they don't bear the sword in vain. They're meant to punish evil and reward good. Christians have always strived to be good citizens who are a blessing to their country, even as the exiles were told to seek the good of the city to which they were brought. But we refuse to admit that the authority of the state is ultimate or total. There are many other religions in the Roman Empire, and Rome had no problem with them because they were willing to sacrifice to Caesar and admit that he was Lord. They had no problem with privatized personal religion. And had Christians been willing to confess a private personal religion, just a, li- just a personal relationship between me and Jesus with nothing to do with the public world or the social order or the political control, they would have been fine. The early church refused to do this. Jesus is Lord. And they recognize that the kingdoms of this world are passing away. However eternal and indestructible they may seem, they are fading away. Their power and their authority has been taken away from them. They're allowed to live a little while longer in order to serve the purposes of Jesus in human history. And when Jesus is done with the kingdoms of this world, they will be consigned to the dustbin of history to be buried in the sand and forgotten. Jesus is the conquering king. He's the warrior king who has come into this world to defeat evil, to defeat slavery, oppression, poverty, rebellion against God, to destroy the last enemy, death itself. He's a good king. He's not about bloodshed and oppression and violence. He's about joy and peace and flourishing. He wants to bring every man and woman to sit under their own vine and their own fig tree for the world to become the Eden that God always intended it to be. So that we would prosper and dwell secure under the reign of the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ reigns over the nations. And I believe God wants to remind you this morning that he reigns over your nation. And even in a small gathering like this, there are many, many countries represented. And it's tempting for each of us 
to look at the situation in our country back home and to feel despair and discouragement. Even to wring our hands and wonder, where is God? God may be moving elsewhere, but is he moving in my own nation? Is God at work? There seems to be such strong resistance to the power of Jesus. Is it really true that Jesus has authority here? When the Spirit opens our eyes and gives us our own apocalyptic revelation to see that Jesus really is on the throne and that his reign extends over every nation without exception, then we realize how unseemly for me to despair of my own country, of my own nation. Jesus reigns over every nation. And despite the opposition of leaders who fear his church and hate the reign of Jesus, Jesus is sovereign and his purposes and his purposes alone will come to pass. Paul in Ephesians 1 tells us that God has placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Jesus is not reigning on his own behalf, for his own ego, and for his own agenda. Jesus has ascended to reign, to bless his people, to use his power to provide for and to protect and to sustain and to lead his church. And we believe that through Christ, all things are working together for the good of those who love God. Not because there's some kind of blind fate, some kind of heavenly machinery that is working away, but because history itself is held in the hands of Jesus. In that vision in Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus holding the seven stars in his hands. Those would have been the sun, the moon, and the five planets that the Greeks and the Romans knew about. Those planets were put on Roman coins as a sign that the fates were aligned with Rome. But it's not Rome who holds the seven stars. Jesus holds the stars and our fates in his hands. And Jesus stands supreme over all created things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And he's governing, he's governing the entirety of human history without exception, directing all of it towards the ultimate end of the salvation of God's people and the glory of his Father. Brothers and sisters, we should all be sitting up a little straighter this afternoon. Heeding Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 6 to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We reign with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. If we had read on in Daniel 7, we would have seen in verse 18 that the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. 
the ascension of Jesus is also our ascension. Do you understand? When you believed in Jesus, you were united with him and permanently linked to him, and your future was fused with the future of Jesus. And you have been lifted up in him to sit with him in the heavenly places. And as citizens of the kingdom, as servants and ambassadors of the kingdom, we share in the power and authority of that kingdom too. I brought my passport with me. Because in the, in the inside page of my passport, my Canadian passport, it says this. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Canada requests, in the name of Her Majesty the Queen, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without delay or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. I don't know if anyone else here has a monarch personally requesting that they be allowed to freely pass. And you may not, humanly speaking, but we all bear within our hearts the passport of heaven. A diplomatic passport, may I add, with all the privileges and rights thereunto. We are clothed with the authority of Jesus. And he says to us, before he ascends, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. We don't go serving a weak Savior. He's not a desperate, dark horse attempt, and we're hoping with our efforts to somehow get him elected to king of the universe. Jesus has already received all authority in heaven and on earth, and that is the foundation. That's what drives our mission. The book of Acts is the book of the ascended and the exalted Jesus, who has poured out his spirit, working through his apostles and his disciples, flooding the nations with grace and mercy as we sang. His word is going forth, and Jesus is saying, let there be light. He's seated on his throne at the right hand of God, and he extends his scepter to nation after nation, to person after person, and he says, let there be light. And he grants repentance and faith and new life to people, like he has to all of us, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And then he gives us the joy of being servants and ambassadors of his kingdom to go to the nations to declare the crown rights of Jesus in his name, clothed with the power of his spirit. And we must remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, whatever your troubles, your trials, your temptations, you belong to a universal, eternal, and indestructible kingdom. The Son of Man is on his throne, and all is well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice together at the supremacy of King Jesus, that the one who loved us and
This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.